0: Ocean advocate is Dr. Greg Rouse. Greg is a marine biologist frequently discovering new species in his work to understand the ocean's organisms and their evolutionary history. Hi, Greg. Welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Allison. I'm happy to be here.
0: To give our listeners a little bit of background, Greg and I met somewhat recently, this year, when I was writing an article for Asian Diver magazine about sea dragons. And Greg has done a lot of research on sea dragons, so I interviewed him for that article and it was Great to meet and talk, and I thought listeners would also be really interested to hear about his research as well. So Greg is here on the show today, which is really great. For those listeners that have never heard of a sea dragon or never seen a sea dragon, sea dragons are a species of fish, very closely related to seahorses, but instead of being kind of vertical in the water column, they're more horizontal. They live only in certain parts of Australia's coastline, so not a very large range, but a really incredible and beautiful animal. Greg, can you talk to us a little bit about the research that you've done regarding the weedy and the leafy sea dragons?
1: Yeah. So I first got intrigued by these animals about oh, more than 10 years ago when I did a dive in Adelaide, South Australia, and managed to see a leafy sea dragon and a weedy, or most uh, usually called common sea dragon, and was intrigued by them. They're just such extraordinary creatures. And looked around in the literature and just was wondering who was doing any research on these animals and really found that very little had been done. There had been a bit on their ecology and their home range and something about their behavior. Myself and my collaborators Nerida Wilson and Steve Donnellan, we got interested in their genetics and we were wondering if the common sea dragon or the weedy sea dragon, which has a range from Perth in the west of Australia all the way over to Sydney, around in the east of Australia, all along the southern coast, and then also in Tasmania, whether that was a single species or whether it might be two species, and also what might be going on with the leafy sea dragon, which has a much more restricted range. It's only found from South Australia to uh, Western Australia. So we were wondering about that, just how many species there were, whether it really was just the two, And then also, we were wondering about their population genetics, whether their populations might be showing gene flow and connectivity is a term we use for it, or whether there might be isolated populations. And the idea behind this was whether there might be populations that could be of special concern and might need protection. So that was the beginning of the story about 10 years ago. And from then, we started a series of field trips to find the sea dragons in their various localities across Australia which I can tell you is a challenge, and then to photograph the fish. And then we had permission to take a little tissue sample from the fish. And from that little tissue sample, we were then able to sequence their DNA. And initially, we did uh, fairly small amounts of DNA sequencing, mainly mitochondrial DNA. But from there, we scaled up recently to what's referred to as next-generation sequencing, which is an incredibly powerful tool. And so this project's really been bubbling along now for the last decade, and some of the papers are just beginning to come to fruition.
0: And so you did in fact find that the common or weedy sea dragon is one species, is that correct?
1: Yes, we definitely see an interesting signal in terms of a genetic break, as in that there's a distinctly western and eastern groupings of the sea dragon, the common sea dragon. Nevertheless, uh, we're very confident to refer to it as a single species. And the same for the leafy sea dragon. Even though it's found in Western and South Australia, it's clearly one species.
0: And can you talk a little bit about the state of sea dragons in Australia's waters currently and how your research has contributed to potentially the conservation of these species or just knowing about them more?
1: Well, all signarthids are federally protected in Australia. And then there are further protections by the actual state authorities. So wherever common sea dragons occur, which is New South Wales, Victoria, Tasmania, South Australia and Western Australia, they have state protection. And the leafy sea dragon is protected in South Australia and Western Australia. And in fact, in some of these states, these fishes are their marine emblems. While they're protected, people can get permission to collect these fish. And we've been interested in how many have been collected over the years and for what purpose. But in terms of scientific research, there has actually been very little done, which was the prime reason we started out our project on their genetics. And this leads to the point of what do we know about their population size? What do we know about how many there are? Are there any particularly vulnerable populations? And Basically, the answer is at the present, we don't really know. We are going to provide some of the first information about that with our projects. For instance, so the International Union of Conservation of Nature, the IUCN, lists uh, the sea dragons as data deficient, and that we basically need more information about them. The sea dragons are listed under CITES, the Convention on the International Trade of Endangered Species. So you need special permission to export any of these animals. And so in some ways, they're relatively well protected. And we know that very few people seem to actually collect them. We've heard stories of people poaching them here and there, but they're very difficult animals to keep alive. So it's not something that a home aquarist can really look after. They need special care, and usually it's public aquaria that have them on display because they're very expensive to feed and maintain. That said, they are very popular at public aquariums, and some people in Australia do have permission to collect these fish and what seems to work best is when a male is collected who has babies, embryos on his tail. And so these, like seahorses, it's the males that do the parental care. And with sea dragons, they don't have a pouch, they stick the eggs from the female onto their tail and then carry them there for six to eight weeks until they hatch out as little baby sea dragons. And these fish can be collected, and then the little babies raised. And these uh, juveniles are then, once they've raised to a couple of months, are then shipped around the world. And that's how the any sea dragon basically that you've seen in captivity has been effectively caught in the wild. It was caught as a as an embryo on its father's tail. And there really hasn't been a success in terms of regular breeding of sea dragons in captivity. And uh, I think this is really something that should hopefully be achieved to stop any further harvesting from sea dragons in the wild, because the ones that are taken tend to be taken from a few easy to collect places. And in the long run, this might end up being deleterious to their populations in those particular areas.
0: And that actually brings me to a really great point in talking about aquariums that have these sea dragons and the necessity, really, for a sea dragon breeding program. And this is something that you've been working on as a collaborative project with Birch Aquarium at Scripps, helping to create and start a sea dragon breeding program there so that potentially aquariums around the world, including Birch Aquarium, no longer have to have someone collect these embryos on a male's tail to have them on display in aquariums. Can you talk a little bit about that partnership with Birch Aquarium and What's come out of that so far?
1: Yes. So the Birch Aquarium has had a long history of working with signafids, and signafids are pipefish and seahorses and sea dragons, all of these amazing fish. And the Birch Aquarium has successfully for more than 20 years been uh, raising and breeding seahorses at their facility and has made these available to various aquariums. And we had started some discussions about whether a sea dragon breeding program might be a good thing to pursue. And thanks to a foundation, the Lowe Family Foundation, led by a woman, Dewey White, Dewey provided the funding for the Birch Aquarium to set up a breeding program, which meant building a special purpose tank and a whole system to then monitor and maintain the temperature for the sea dragons, a lighting regime, and basically trying to reproduce their natural environment as closely as possible. While we, my lab at Scripps, we were funded to continue on the genetic side of things of the sea dragons in the wild, but to also um, provide information when required to the Birch Aquarium. And so they've been working now for the last few years, The tank's built, they have the sea dragons, Uh, they're trying with common sea dragons, and they've had several events where females have dropped eggs, attempted to transfer eggs to males, but so far a successful transfer hasn't happened. They have had a male who was carrying eggs that had happened at the Monterey Bay Aquarium, which was then donated to us at Scripps. They managed to raise, have a baby hatch out and had that successfully raised, so they're ready they're able to do it. And it's just a matter of uh, hopefully figuring out some of the issues in terms of synchronizing the males and the females in terms of their behavior and and basically getting the whole system ready. And maybe there's something we don't understand or don't know, but they're certainly working hard to try and get these sea dragons to breed with the long-term goal of hopefully being able to stop any further harvesting from the wild.
0: And so you've actually helped a lot with not only giving knowledge, but you've actually taken a trip with Leslie Matsuchigi, who is the curator of that sea dragon breeding program, you you two actually went to Australia together to observe these sea dragons in their natural habitat to try to learn more about how they breed and, and what kind of conditions you can make for them in captivity to make them reproduce. And you've also gone recently on another expedition to Australia. You just got back, actually, and you were able to For the first time, see a brand new species of sea dragon in the wild called the ruby sea dragon. You and your lab were actually the first to ever discover this species of sea dragon. Can you talk a little bit about discovering this new species of sea dragon and then finding it in the wild and and what that has been like for you?
1: Yeah, so this is one of these stories that is about serendipity, about luck in a way, but also about diligence and hard work. And the credit here lies with Josephine Stiller, who's doing her PhD with myself and with Nerida Wilson. And Josephine was working with our several hundred tissue samples of common and leafy sea dragons that we gathered over the years. And Josephine herself has been on field trips to gather further tissue samples. But we also had discussed about whether there might be further sea dragon tissues that we could use in museums in Australia. So Josephine wrote to the various collections in Australia asking if they had any tissue samples, and Josephine was sent a tissue sample from the Western Australian Museum, and when she sequenced the DNA of that particular specimen, and what she received actually was just a clip off the tail of this fish, it turned out to be dramatically different from a common sea dragon and a leafy sea dragon. And she checked and she double-checked. And by the time she was convinced, she then came and spoke to me and with Nerida and we said, well, let's uh, see what this fish looks like. And so the Western Australian Museum sent us the fish, but also by chance and quite unusually, this fish had been caught on a biodiversity survey and when it was on deck after being trawled was photographed. The picture we were sent showed this bright red fish. And when we were sent it, we also immediately realized it was not a common sea dragon or a leafy sea dragon because it had quite a different shape. So we now had visual morphological anatomical evidence that it was different as well as we had clear DNA evidence. And because of the color in the photograph, we gave it the common name, uh, the ruby sea dragon. It really was a beautiful ruby red. And we gave it the scientific name. It belonged in the genus Phylopteryx. Its closest relative is actually the common or weedy sea dragon, which is in the genus Phylopteryx. And that one is called Phylopteryx teneolatus. We called the ruby sea dragon Phylopteryx dewey sea after our friend uh, dewey white. And we had no knowledge about what they look like alive. And so we spoke to dewey white about whether we could do an expedition back to Western Australia. And she said she was very keen to fund this. And so we went there just last month. The region we chose to go to was where the original fish that we had sequenced the DNA from had come from. And we had fairly good locality details, and we knew it was in about 50 meters of water. So we knew it was beyond normal scuba diving depth. And so we decided to use a small remote-operated vehicle. And we just wanted to get imagery, the first video and live imagery of the Ruby Sea Dragon. Amazingly, we were successful in actually finding two Ruby Sea Dragons. Most of the time it was too rough, and we only really were able to get to the site that we thought was the best chance on one day. And on that day, we did a series of dives. And on one dive, we saw two sea dragons. And it was basically a beautiful sandy habitat at about 50 meters that had a lot of sponges on it. So we would normally characterize it as a sponge garden. There was also algae down that deep. And uh, we saw one sea dragon, followed it for about 10 minutes, have got some remarkable video. And then that sea dragon, as we followed it along, actually, I wouldn't say led us to, but we then came across another sea dragon And they were together for about a minute or two and then one went off in one direction and we then decided to follow the new sea dragon and we followed that for another 20 minutes. And we have quite a series of observations and I'm writing up that paper as we speak now in April of 2016 and I hope that we'll get that published and some of the video that we made online sometime in 2016.
0: Well, I just want to say congratulations on finding the ruby sea dragon in the wild, two of them actually, and and to Josephine for realizing that the DNA sequencing of this sample was not the same and for all of you for believing in the fact that maybe this could be a new species. So it's really incredible what you guys have found and, and been able to prove and I know really great things will come from it. I'm very excited to see the video footage that you guys will be posting sometime this year. And so you not only do research on sea dragons, you do research on many other ocean animals. And you are actually also the curator of the benthic invertebrate collection at Scripps Institution of Oceanography, where you work. And much of those benthic invertebrates, meaning animals without backbones that live on the bottom of the seafloor, are worms. And you have a very big interest in researching marine worms that live on the bottom of our seafloor. Do you want to talk a little bit about why you enjoy researching worms and why they're important to know about when we're trying to learn about our different ocean environments?
1: So the sea dragon side of my research has actually uh, been a a relatively recent component in terms of the last 10 years. I know that sounds like it, it still is a long time, but Uh, Normally I I study invertebrates, so that's animals without backbones, and the prime group, as you said, is worms, and worms covers a variety of kinds of animals, so what I'm normally studying are what are called polychaete worms, or annelid worms, and these are segmented worms, and most people would be familiar with those as earthworms, or maybe even leeches, but actually the vast majority of the diversity of annelids is in the sea. And there are thousands and thousands of species, and they are very diverse. And I've been interested in them for many years now because they do many different things. They have a wonderful diversity of feeding mechanisms. They also reproduce in many different ways. So there are ones that have asexual reproduction. They just split in half. There are others that have spawning into the water where they just put the eggs and sperm out and don't have any parental care where there are quite a lot that actually have a lot of parental care, where the mother will, will actually attach the babies to her body and crawl around with them or she'll put them in a tube with her or make them into a cocoon and, and show quite a degree of parental care. And that aspect actually was what I originally did my PhD and my postdoctoral training on was studying the evolution of this parental care behavior. And why that was tractable or doable with polychaetes is you could take a fairly small group And the group I chose initially were were called feather duster worms. They're they're beautiful. They're called sebellids. They look like a flower coming out of the sand or out of a tube because most of the worm body is hidden in the tube and they just have their head is transformed into a filter feeding apparatus and they feed on plankton like that. So next time you're snorkeling or in a coral reef or anywhere and you see this kind of flower-like thing that pulls into its tube, uh, you might well be looking at a polychaete. And these animals have a huge size variation. They can be 50 or more centimetres long down to less than a millimetre. So they have a massive size variability as adults. And then they have this whole range of reproduction from parental care, where they might look after three or six babies at a time, or they might spawn out 750,000 eggs at a time and untold millions of sperm. And so I wanted to study the evolution of that. Was spawning into the water primitive or was parental care looking after the babies primitive? The theory in the literature was that basically that parental care tended to evolve from this broadcast spawning. When I heard that, I thought, well, that sounds a bit anthropocentric, and that why should parental care be always derived from broadcast spawning? Was that just some kind of human bias? And so I've spent a lot of time thinking about this and trying to document evolutionary trees of these groups like the feather duster worms. And some of the early work I did showed that actually the parental care was the original condition in the group and from that broadcast spawning and no parental care had evolved and it seems that the factor involved in this was actually body size small animals look after their babies and by this i mean one millimeter or so animals and that larger animals tend to have the broadcast spawning and the reason for this actually comes down to a thing called surface area to volume ratio and that if you're a big animal You might be able to make an awful lot of eggs, but you can't physically look after them. You don't have the surface area to attach 750,000 babies to you, so you might as well just spawn them out into the water. And because you're making so many babies, a lot of them will end up being fertilized as long as a male nearby has spawned as well, and a lot of them will still survive the predatory environment of the plankton. But if you're little, you're only one millimeter long, you, you better not spawn your few eggs out into the water. You should hang on to them. So that was my initial fascination with polychaetes, but I'm also interested, these annelids, in their overall diversity, and I've written a lot about their their overall diversity and evolution and uh, continue to to study them as, to this day, from habitats from intertidal, rocky shores to deep sea environments like methane seats and hydrothermal vents.
0: And so, one type of worm that you've actually discovered, and many different species in this one group of worms called Osadax, you discovered these worms on a whale fall in the deep sea. I think it was in Monterey Bay Canyon that you discovered these worms. Can you talk a little bit about discovering these Osadax worms, what they do, and the significance of finding them? Because they're really a global species that you've now found over the years that they are in many, many parts of the world's deep sea. Can you talk about finding the Osidax and the significance of it?
1: Yeah. Uh, Osidax is a Latin name. Os means bone and edax means devour. And so I uh, worked with and continue to work with Bob Vrienhoek who's at Monterey Bay Aquarium and Research Institute. And it was actually Bob he found a whale fall in Monterey Bay and the whale was covered with these red flowers, basically. And they collected some bones with these red flowers and it, they looked at them and they thought, what? these are pretty weird. The flowers seem to be coming right out of the bone. And they figured it was some kind of worm and at that point I was still working in Australia and they sent me some of these bones. Bob and his postdoc Shana Goffredi and I then basically worked together to figure out that this was ozodax based on genetics and DNA was uh, part of a group called Siboglinidae, and these are annelid worms uh, but they don't have a gut and uh, ozodax was actually mostly inside the bone and it seemed to have a root system and these roots were branching out into the bone and clearly it seemed to be eating the bone somehow but there was no mouth and no gut so When we look closely at these roots, it turned out the roots were full of bacteria on the inside. Ozidax, it appears, is eating the bones of the bacteria by dissolving the bones away and then providing the bacteria with the bone matrix, the collagen or potentially the fats in the bone, through its skin to the bacteria that are in its tissues and then we think eating the actually digesting the bacteria. So it's a very remarkable uh, lifestyle that these bone-eating worms have, and since discovering them originally in Monterey Bay, they were then found by some Japanese researchers in Japan, by some English and Swedish researchers in Sweden, uh, now discovered by other researchers in Antarctica. I've uh, managed to find them with some collaborators in Australia. So they really do appear to be a phenomenon wherever there were bones on the seafloor they are found, and it's not just whale bones, they're found on other mammal bones. And we also did some experiments in Monterey where we put down fish bones, like swordfish bones and tuna bones, and they also exploded those bones. So it looks like no bones are safe, but ozodax, wherever they are in in the world, and then they do appear to be in all oceans, will find these bones and get onto them. And they these worms actually are generally females. So one of the other mysteries we had was where were the males? And that was one of the other fun things about them is that osedax normally the females are the ones that eat the bone and the males are actually little tiny dwarfs that live in the tubes of the females. So we call them harems of dwarf males live in the tubes of these females and they fertilize her eggs. And these little dwarf males never actually eat bone. They just live on the yolk that they were given by their mother. So Ozodax is quite extraordinary, one, for its uh, amazing food source, which is bones, which otherwise are very much unavailable to most creatures. They're so hard and difficult to break into and break down, although it's a great food resource. And two, they have this amazing uh, reproductive lifestyle in having these dwarf males.
0: And so... You've discovered the Ossidex species, you know, many of those. You've played a large part in discovering this ruby sea dragon, and I know that you've discovered many, many more species beyond that. We could talk probably for days about the different species that you've discovered um, around the world and our oceans. Can you talk a little bit about what it's like discovering new species, maybe how many you've discovered, and what that means to you?
1: Well, I think it's a great privilege to be able to find uh, new species and I I don't want to be blase about it but I think I can use this as a way of highlighting that we still have a lot yet to do in terms of understanding our oceans and I think we've barely begun actually in documenting the biodiversity of our oceans. I think there are thousands upon thousands of species still to be discovered and named in our oceans and my small part so far has been to name I actually couldn't give you a number, but I know it's up well over 100 species today. But I've discovered many more. The process of giving a species a name is quite intensive and there's a clear set of rules about it and it can be quite difficult sometimes to establish whether you've got a new species or not because uh, you have to be very clear in showing that the name uh, might not be applied for a pre-existing species onto something that you've found. So we in my lab, uh, routinely use genetic evidence from DNA, but many, many, many of the species that are, have been named from the sea, there's no DNA evidence available. So that's often one of the challenges is to figure out, well, do we really have a new species? So often we'll have samples and it might be years and years before we can unequivocally show that it's a new species. And in some cases, we are sitting on things and we're pretty sure they're new, but until we can show that they're new, without a doubt, we just have to continue to sit and wait. And so at the moment, the rules are complicated and it's a challenge to name the new species and it takes a while. So, for instance, Ozodax, myself and Bob, Brian Hoke and Shana are sitting on about 14 species of Ozodax that we actually haven't formally named in the Latin name sense of a genus and a species. We've had placeholder names on them and publish their genetics, but we're now going through the process of actually formally naming these uh, 14 new species to try and get our backlog of undescribed Osidax out of the way. And then I have a whole other series of other annelids as well that, that we're in the process of naming with my students. I think this is important to get these animals named because then, in a sense, they exist, and that then they'll be counted in a way, and they'll be on the radar in terms of conservation and biodiversity estimates. There are many, many DNA sequences, for instance, on an archive, an inventory that's uh, called GenBank, the American repository where all of our DNA sequences are formally placed when we publish DNA sequences. And there are many sequences on GenBank where there's not a species name associated with it. It might have a placeholder name, like I was talking about with Ozodax, where we called something Ozodax Yellow Collar, for instance. That wasn't a formal scientific name. We're now in the process of giving that Ozodax Yellow Collar a scientific name. But many people would not actually count that as a species unless it had a real name. And yet there are all of these things that might well be species sitting on GenBank. And so I didn't originate this term, but a guy called Rod Page came up with this and he calls them dark taxa. They're species we, in a sense, know that are out there, but they don't have a name. And in a sense, they're unrecognized. And I think this process of formally naming things is really important, or we need to overcome this problem of things not having names and somehow have a way of making sure they get counted and understood when we do biodiversity surveys. And I think it's one of our real problems in biodiversity and conservation. And so my way of of helping out with it is actually to name as many things as I can.
0: So yeah, you've got this really great program, Name a Species Program, that you've set up at Scripps Institution of Oceanography. Can you talk to us a little bit about how that came about and what it is?
1: So when species are formally named they need to follow a set of rules and for animals there's a set of rules that's published by the International Commission of Zoological Nomenclature and that is a set of quite complicated rules in fact but in the end what you end up getting is a genus name and a species name. So our name for instance humans is called Homo sapiens and The process whereby a newly discovered species then gets given a genus and a species name means you need to follow those rules and then also publish it in a scientific journal. And the rules also involve putting specimens into a museum and properly describing the new species. So, as part of the Name a Species program, we will offer the opportunity for a donor to have an officially named species named For them or for a family member or a friend or anything like that in exchange for making a donation to a Scripps endowment that helps fund our collections. So we have several basically museum-like collections here at Scripps where specimens are archived for the long term and also it helps fund uh, the activities of my lab that actually where we do go through the process of naming these new species. Now I didn't invent a name a species program, other people have certainly sold species names uh, before for benefactors and donors, and in fact, the whole process seems to go all the way back to Linnaeus, the person who really is where the official naming of species begins uh, in 1758. Uh, So we, for the donation, and they started about $5,000 to get a species name, Uh, we will provide the donor with a beautiful uh, print, and we pride ourselves on taking great photos of our new species, uh, of the live animals, It usually takes at least or around two years for the whole process of the species to be described and submitted to a journal and become out as a formal scientific publication. And then we send the donor that actual paper as well. And we we also go to great lengths to be sure that our species is in fact new. So we always back it up with DNA sequencing and go through the whole process to to basically guarantee that it is a new species and that it isn't something that might have been named previously.
0: And so you mentioned these images of the subjects that you're having people name or that you're naming yourself. Can you talk a little bit about the amazing photography that you do of your subjects, your animals that you are studying or naming and why that's important to you?
1: I'm not a great or I don't specialize in Underwater photography, yeah, there are some incredible underwater photographers out there, but I have really put a lot of effort into photographing underwater microscopic animals. So, this involves getting the small animals out of the sediments or out of the algae and then bringing them back to a lab. And usually, I'm talking things that are a few millimeters to a centimeter or so long. So, often things that are overlooked. And usually these animals are preserved and end up being looked at when they're dead. And often when that happens, they're faded and they're contorted. And they're really it's a misleading sense of how beautiful this micro world environment is when that's all you ever see of it is preserved specimens. So from very early on, I've really tried to document these animals when they're alive and have set up systems that involve now Great digital cameras and you can use wireless flashes so even when you're out in a heavy sea you can take photographs of animals and capture them really with all the dynamism and beautiful colors that they have in life. I put a lot of effort into that and really use that as a way of promoting also the unrecognized richness of biodiversity and at the smaller scale of the ocean world.
0: Well, that's really great. I know I've seen some of your images of your subjects, and they are really, really incredible photos. And I love that you find such importance in photographing them in their natural state with all their color and and beauty. So for our listeners, I will be linking to Greg's lab website that you guys can see some of those images of the worms and other animals that he researches. I will also be linking to the blog that Greg and some of his other colleagues were contributing to about the ruby sea dragon expedition that they just went on and discovering that new species out in the wild. And I'll also link to Greg's faculty page on the Scripps website so that you guys can get in contact with him if you were inspired by What he said today or interested in his research maybe you want to collaborate with him maybe you have some questions so i'll be linking to all of that so you guys can learn more about all of the great work that greg is doing so greg thank you so much for being on the show today i really enjoyed talking to you
1: oh thank you alice and i enjoyed the conversation
0: you just heard dr greg rouse marine biologist discovering new species in his work to understand the ocean's organisms and their evolutionary history to learn more about the topics discussed in this podcast visit my website at alisonrandolph.com and tune in to next week's episode to hear another conversation between me and someone creating positive change for the ocean.